Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
weeks ago, we were in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians before we were so rudely interrupted by Christmas, and then uh, a week of family talk and testimonies. And so we're going to pick up this morning again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We had essentially completed the chapter a couple of weeks ago, but in doing so, I emphasized the fact that in verse 13, Paul said that we should always give thanks for you, brethren, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And we were utilizing that verse to demonstrate the absolute sovereignty of God when it comes to the matter of salvation because that verse stood in contrast to a previous passage in this very same chapter where God turned people over to a strong delusion so that they would believe the lie so that they would be condemned. So when you look at that contrast, you have God taking responsibility for two different things. Number one, he takes responsibility for deluding people so that they will believe what is false so that they will end up under his condemnation versus people who fall under his grace, who he has chosen from the beginning so that they will be saved through sanctification of the truth. Now, the second half of that contrast For the most part, we're all comfortable with the idea that God is sovereign in salvation. That is really good news. If you ever grasp that idea that God is sovereign in salvation, that is very comforting. That's very reassuring, especially if you're anything like me. If if you know anything about your own depravity, if you know anything about your own sinfulness, then it's no comfort to you if somebody says, You know, you can get you saved if you just work harder. Because if you're honest with yourself, you know you you can't be as good as God. You can't live up to that impossibly high, holy, righteous standard. No matter what point of life you're at right now, you have already sinned enough to come short of that standard. And so there is a certain desperation built into any theology that tells you, you got to get busy, clean yourself up, fix yourself, and then God will accept you on the basis of you. And so the idea that God chooses people from the beginning for salvation is really, really good news if you're among those who he has indeed chosen who he has brought to faith in Jesus Christ, you get to live out the rest of your life having peace with God, knowing that he has ever loved you, that he has chosen you, that he is protecting you, and that he is going to get you to your predestined heavenly estate. That's just great news. I grew up in the church of do more stuff. I used to describe my... uh, theological upbringing as boom, 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 do stuff, work harder. And what I knew for sure was that I was never good enough to please God. And so I became desperate. I became convinced that the whole thing was futile. And so I I just left the church. 
So really good news when I heard the doctrines of grace. Really good news when I found out that salvation was a result of God and his power and his control and that he saved someone as wretched as me. Oh, what glorious good news. So we're all happy with that. But people struggle with the first half of that contrast. The idea that God would turn some people over to a strong delusion so that they would believe what is not true so that they would be condemned. That's really hard for us, really difficult to grasp because most of us already have a notion of God in our minds. Far too often it's an imaginary notion of God. We have built a God after ourselves, our own image and likeness. And the God that we create is just a really nice, loving grandfather in the sky who gives us the things that we ask for. And that's as much as most of us want to know about God. So when we come across passages like this, it's upsetting to us. It's difficult for us. Even as I'm saying this, there are people on the internet right now going, oh, I don't like your God. Oh, your God's a monster. Oh, your God decides and chooses. No, it, it should be up to me. I should be able to decide. I should be able to choose. I'm going to be getting mail about this right away. People are going to email me in all capital letters to tell me how much they don't like the God I'm talking about right now, except that I'm not the one that made him up. This is the God of the Bible. Now, if you're going to reject the God of the Bible, all I ask of anybody is that you stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with what the Bible says and understand what it is you're rejecting. At least be honest enough, since we are talking about your ever-living, never-dying soul, at least be honest enough with yourself to look at the biblical evidence and then it will either drive you away from him or it will drive you to your knees. And I am willing to tell you about the real God of the Bible in the hopes that it drives you to your knees on your face to actually worship the real sovereign maker of the universe who does everything according to his own goodwill and according to his own good pleasure. That's the only God of the Bible. Now, I'm still introducing, by the way. So, uh, so far, you're okay with my introduction? Okay, good. Now, when people come across this passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Sometimes they think, well, well, that's a peculiarity or that's a, uh, an aberration. Paul didn't really mean that. He wasn't describing the God who lives forever. He was just saying something theologically that we don't quite understand. They try to excuse it or avoid it. But the fact is, the God who turns people over to delusions so that they will be condemned is the same God you find all the way through the Bible. What we know for sure about God is that he doesn't change. As James said, there's no variableness with him, neither shadow of turning. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. So if we find a characteristic in the New Testament, like he's the sovereign God who chooses who will be eternally saved and who will be condemned, 
If that's the God you find in the New Testament, then you ought to be able to find that same God in the Old Testament because he doesn't change. And all too often, I think the reason people struggle with the God of the New Testament is because they really aren't familiar with the Old Testament. So what we're going to do this morning for the first part of the morning is look at a, a story, a passage from the Old Testament that is going to demonstrate the exact same God doing the exact same thing, saving some people and condemning other people. And he's going to do it by sending strong delusion into the minds, hearts, and voices of the prophets of Israel. And so that God who acts like that is the same God who to this very day is still on his throne, still in charge, and he still is in the business of saving and determining who it is that's going to be eternally in his presence. You got all that? Got it. Okay. I didn't mean to come out all guns blazing, but I don't have a lot of time. And now that I've said all that, theologically, now it's story time with Uncle Jimmy. And so we can all relax now and enjoy a good story. If you would, turn to 1 Kings, the very end of the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. Turn to chapter 22. 1 Kings 22, even though I'm going to start reading, actually in chapter 21. Do you know the name King Ahab? King Ahab was a king of the northern tribes. By this point in history, the northern and southern tribes had divided into two different kingdoms. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes essentially to the south, plus the Levites who worked in the temple there in Jerusalem. There was a succession of kings in the north and in the south. The descendants of David in the south were occasionally good kings, oftentimes not, which is why the Babylonian captivity happens. The succession of kings in the north are bad, and then bad, and then bad, and then there's some bad ones, and then there's some bad, and then there's bad. Okay, and so sort of the culmination of all this badness happening in the northern kingdom is this king Ahab who has a wife that you all know even if you don't know her her name is Jezebel Jezebel is the evil queen who is corrupting and manipulating her husband Ahab and Ahab has come into his home one day into his fabulous home and is complaining he's downcast he doesn't feel great and his wife says to him what's the matter and he says well there's this guy named Naboth and Naboth has a vineyard and I really liked his vineyard and so I offered to buy his vineyard I even told him I'd give him a different vineyard for his vineyard but he said no it's a family inheritance and he wasn't going to sell it to me no matter what and now I feel all dejected and upset because I want Naboth's vineyard and he won't give it to me so Jezebel responds to him and that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 21 verse 11 
So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in letters which she sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast, and they seated Naboth at the head of his people. Okay, here's Jezebel's plot. Let's go make Naboth feel really important. And she has also said to Ahab, you're the king, except she said it in Hebrew. And she said, you're, you're the king, which means you can do whatever you want. So why are you downcast? Why are you upset? If you want Naboth's vineyard, go get it. So now she's hatching a plot. So they proclaimed a fast, and they seated Naboth at the head of his people. And then there were these two worthless men who came in and sat before him. And the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and cursed the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. So they lured him in. They accused him with false witnesses. They said that he did things he didn't do, and then they killed him for it. Then they sent word back to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, and he is dead. And it came about, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And it came about, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Elijah is God's prophet. Elijah the Tishbite. The word says to him, verse 18, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. Okay, that's a really important prediction on the part of God that Ahab is not only going to die, but his blood is going to be running there in Jezreel in the same place where the blood of Naboth was, and the same way that the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, they are going to lick up the blood of the king. Okay, so once God has said that, once God has made that prediction, then God has to make sure it happens. God then has to, again, order the events of human history in such a way that this absolutely happens. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you. And will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male 
both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. And of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. And it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Okay, that is all precursor to what we're about to read and what I'm about to demonstrate to you, that God has always been a God who saves who he wants and who is able to bring about false understandings or untruths, and he is able to divide between the saved and the lost. And he does it in the Old Testament the same way he does it in the New I just wanted to introduce you to the players and introduce you to Ahab. Now, God has made a curse on Ahab and Ahab's house. But he has also said he's not going to bring about that curse till after Ahab is dead. So now God is planning the death of Ahab. And he's going to bring it about by putting lies in the tongues of his prophets. Chapter 22, three years passed without war between Aram and Israel, and it came about in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, came down to the king of Israel, that's Ahab. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hands of the king of Aram. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of Yahweh. Smart move. Okay, I'll go to battle with you. My people are like your people. You can have my armaments and my horses. But before we go fight with the Arameans, let's check with God. Let's find out if God is going to give them into our hands or whether this is just going to be a futile battle. So please inquire first for the word of the Lord and the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, over 400 men, and said to them, 
Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, this is 400 people, they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. 400 prophets of the king, all with one voice, said, yes, absolutely, go, because God is going to give it to you. But Jehoshaphat said, and you got to like Jehoshaphat at this point, even if you don't care for his name, you got to like Jehoshaphat. There was something about these 400 guys all in unison that made Jehoshaphat say, that can't be right. They're all saying the same thing, but look at verse 7. Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet another prophet of the Lord here so that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh. But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. That's a clue. If you want to be a prophet that the king likes, if you want to be a prophet that the king's going to take care of, You always say good things about him, because after all, he's the king. And if you say something bad, he'll hurt you. And so all the prophets across the board, 400 of them, oh, yeah, go into battle. It's going to be fine. The Lord is with you. And then the king of Israel admits, yeah, there's this one other guy, but I hate him because he never says anything good about me. The truth about Ahab is he's not good. And the one guy who was willing to tell him he's not good is the one guy he doesn't want to hear from. I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chana'anah, made horns of iron for himself, and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Arameans until they are consumed. So picture this now. You've got two kings sitting in the gate on their thrones in their royal splendor, and they're bringing all these various prophets in front of them, some of whom are using visual aids, apparently. And and this one prophet has made himself a set of horns so that he can say, this is the way you're going to gore the Arameans. They're just, they're pumping the king up and trying to convince him that, yes, we've heard from God. You definitely can go into battle because you're definitely going to win. I will tell you now, they are all wrong. Every single one of them, even with visual aids, still wrong. All the prophets, says verse 12, all the prophets were prophesying the same way, saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. 
And then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. So please let your words be like the words of one of them and speak favorably. So before you even get to go talk to the king, who's going to ask you to inquire of God, make sure whatever you say is good stuff. Say the same thing the other 400 have said. Don't be like you always are where you say bad stuff about the king. Instead, go say good stuff. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him and said, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And apparently he said it in such a way that the king went, oh, that's not you. That's not the way you talk. Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? So Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Micaiah just told the king, if you go into battle, your armies are going to be scattered on the hills because they have no more king. They're going to have no leader, no shepherd. They're going to have no one to tell them, no master, no one to lead them into battle. That's what's going to happen to you if you go into battle. He's the only one out of 400 who was willing to tell the king the actual truth. Why? Why did the others all uniformly lie to the king? Well, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but only evil? It's like, see, I told you what this guy's like. And he said, nothing good about me. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven was standing by him on his right and on his left. And Yahweh the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and die at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. God's holding counsel in heaven. And among those that are in his presence, he says, I need Ahab to go and die at Ramoth Gilead. Which one of you are willing to go accomplish that for me? And how are you going to do it? And then one said this and another said that. And then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. 
Then God said to him, you are to entice him and you will also prevail. Go and do so. Okay, this is leading us to all kinds of theological questions and potential dilemmas. For instance, did God lie to the prophets? No. He has a deceptive spirit who is under his control, who is willing to go deceive the prophets. Is that spirit under the hand of a sovereign God? Yeah, absolutely. So sovereign, in fact, that all the way through the Bible, we find that the devil and his minions and these deceiving spirits can't do anything without God's permission. That's all the way through the Bible. The same as when uh, Jesus saw the demoniac by the Gadarenes. And he Asked him, what is your name? They said, we are legion because we are many. And then Jesus drove them out. When they saw Jesus walking on the planet, they were terrified. It says that they worshipped him. And they asked him the question, are you come here to cast us into the abyss before our time? They knew that he was Lord Almighty and that he was the one who was going to judge them. He was the one that was going to condemn them. They're running around the earth, ransacking at will, and suddenly he shows up on planet earth. This is really heavy stuff. They recognize him for who he is, the very son of God. They desire to take pigs because they can no longer stay inside the human host that they're all living in. This legion wants to take a herd of pigs and they couldn't do it without Jesus agreeing. Who's in charge? Jesus. Jesus is in charge. And then Jesus said, yeah, take the pigs. So they did. And the pigs killed themselves. So Across the board, everywhere that you look in the Bible, Satan can only do. If you look at the book of Job, the conversation between Satan and God at the beginning of the book of Job, God lays out the parameters. Yeah, you can touch his skin. You can make him sick, but you can't kill him. You can touch his body. You can touch his stuff, but you can't kill him. God is always in charge, always in control. And so no surprise that when God is sitting on his throne dealing with the spiritual realm that when he says, who's willing to go up for me and cause Ahab to die at Ramoth Gilead, there is a spirit that says, I will do it. I believe this is a demonic spirit. It is a lying spirit. And God is in control of him. And he says, I'll do it. God says, how? He says, I'll go and make sure that all 400 prophets lie to him. And God approves the plan and says, yeah, that'll work. You go do it. You comfortable with a God like that? Because that's the God of the Bible. That's the God who saves, and that's the God who can condemn. Okay, so here's how it falls out. Verse 23. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put, this is Micaiah telling the king what has just occurred. The Lord has put a deceiving, lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. 
Then Zedekiah, remember him? We saw him a moment ago, the son of Chana'anah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek, just slapped him and said, how did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? He's doubling down and he's saying, listen, I'm speaking for the Lord. When did the spirit of the Lord leave me and come talk to you? I told the king, go up and fight, and I, I'm not deceived. And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you enter the inner room and hide yourself. That is Micaiah's way of saying, you're going to find out. When the king is dead and you are no longer protected by the king, you're going to go hide yourself in an inner room somewhere. And when you get there, that's when you're going to know that you're a liar and I'm telling the truth. I actually heard from God. The king of Israel said, this is verse 26, take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, to the governor of the city and to Joash, the king's son, and say... Thus says the king, put this man in prison, feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. The king's determined now to go to war. And he is determined that he's going to come back. And then he's going to stand in front of Micaiah and go, there, see, you're wrong. I'm alive. Verse 28, and Micaiah said, if you indeed do return safely, then Yahweh has not spoken to me. And he said, listen, all you people. So they've made a deal here. You're either coming back alive or you're not. If you don't, I'm the only one who heard from God. If you do, I didn't hear from God. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into the battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. The subtext of that is Ahab, who is a coward, wanted to hide in the battle and look like just one of the soldiers. And he said to Jehoshaphat, you sit up on the hill in your robes so that when the Arameans come to kill me, they'll come get you. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots saying, do not fight with small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So it came about when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And then it happened. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned away from pursuing him. Okay, so Ahab is down in the midst of the battle. You would think that would be dangerous enough. But God is going to make sure to take Ahab out by his own sovereign control of everything. Now, when I say sovereign control of everything, I'm talking about things like the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. That means little things, detailed things, seemingly random things, things of chance, rolling dice. God's in charge of it, and the whole outcome of it is up to God. I'm talking about the sovereignty of God where Jesus could say, 
Consider the sparrows in the field. Two of them are sold for half a penny. They're worthless, and yet not a one of them can drop out of the sky without the permission of your father. That kind of sovereignty. I'm talking about a God who's so in control. You'll notice here that no man sticks a sword through Ahab. No man chops him down in the midst of battle. He doesn't get run over by a horse. He doesn't fall under a chariot. None of the typical ways that people die during battle. Here's the way Ahab dies. Verse 34. Now a certain man drew his bow at random. He wasn't shooting at anybody. He was just in the battle. He's an archer. And he just drew his bow and let an arrow fly. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel and didn't just strike him in a joint of his armor. What a specific shot. What a perfect shot. You got a guy in full armor and yet the arrow manages to go through one of the seams, one of the joints so that it gets through into his skin, and the guy who killed him didn't even know he did it. He just tossed an arrow into the air and killed the king Ahab. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint in his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, this is the king, said to the driver of his chariot, turn around. Take me out of this fight, for I'm severely wounded. And the battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans, and he died that evening. And the blood from that wound ran into the bottom of his chariot, and then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his own city, and every man to his own country, exactly like Micaiah predicted. So the king died, and he was brought to Samaria, and the king was buried in Samaria, and then they had to wash the bloody chariot. Look at the amount of detail in this. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, And the dogs licked up his blood. It's the same place where the harlots bathed themselves. And all of that happened according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. The blood of Ahab, who died in battle, ended up being washed out in the very place in Jezreel where Naboth's blood flowed. And the dogs licked it up just like God said. This is a God who's in charge of details. Are you getting what I'm saying here? This is an absolutely sovereign God who accomplished the death of Ahab, the king of Israel, by putting lying spirits into the mouths of all his prophets. It's the same God you find in 2 Thessalonians. It's the same God who can choose people from the beginning, who Paul was thankful that God loved them so much that he would choose them from the beginning for salvation. And that is right on the heels of the God who would turn people over to strong delusions so that they would believe the lie, so that they would be condemned. What happened to King Ahab? 
He was told a lie by all of his prophets, and he believed the lie so that he would be condemned. Same God acting the exact same way. This is the God of the Bible. There is no other. Here, I'll read the end of the story. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there, and it all happened according to the word that the Lord had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house which he built, and all of the cities which he built, are they not all written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. Okay, back to 2 Thessalonians. The only reason that I went through all that with you was so that you can see that the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And what Paul has said here about God saving some from the beginning, choosing them for salvation, and meanwhile being willing to turn others over to a lie, to strong delusion, so that they would be condemned. This is the way God has always been. This is the way God has always acted. And if you can get a hold of that God, if you understand a God who is that completely and utterly sovereign, then whenever he is good to you, whenever he blesses you, when he is in the process of saving you or correcting you or teaching you or bringing you along on this Christian walk, you're never going to think that you did it. You're always going to understand that this was the mercy, love, and kindness of a God who is perfectly willing to judge and condemn other people. Get on your face in front of that God. I hope now that this will make more sense to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 7. I'm just going to read it out, and then hopefully we'll begin chapter 3. Technically, that was all introduction. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth and who took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 
And it was for this that he called you through our good news, through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, knowing all that, knowing everything we've heard so far out of this book, then knowing that, stand firm. This world is going to tell you as much as it possibly can. Well, I I hate that God. (laughs) I hate your Bible. And I hate the idea that you would undermine my free will. I can do whatever I want, doggone it. And if I want to go to heaven, I'm going. It's all up to me. It's the way the world prefers to think. So when you actually talk about the only God that you find in the Bible, people are going to oppose you. They might even slap you like they did Micaiah. They're going to oppose you. And so Paul, knowing the friction that's coming, knowing the difficult days that are coming, he says, you got to stand firm. you got to plant your feet. you got to know what you believe, and you got to know why you believe it. So that when the slings and arrows of people's emotions, which, by the way, this world these days, even in politics, is just running on emotions. There's no more logic. There's no more thinking going on. Everything is emotionally driven. And when people get emotional, they get irrational, and they get crazy, and they're going to come after you about it. And so Paul says, you got to be ready to just stand firm on what it is you believe. You're not going to go along to get along. You're not going to compromise the truth. You're not going to back away from what you know. In fact, you're going to be willing to lay down your life for the truth. And so Paul says, now that you know all this, stand firm and hold on to what you've learned. Learn from where? Learn from the apostles. Learn from Paul. Learn from the history and traditions of the teaching of the gospel. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Whether Paul taught them by word of mouth or whether it was in one of his letters like the one we're reading right now, Paul says, learn it and stand in it. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us an eternal comfort and a good hope by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and good word. Now, I said at the beginning, 45 minutes ago, I said when I first came to understand the grace of God, it was a tremendous comfort to me. Because all of my attempts at pleasing God or obligating God based on my flesh were all just futile. And all it led to was despair and dismay. And I left the church because I got tired of being pounded on over things I just knew I could not do. When I first heard about the grace of a sovereign God who actually saves, doesn't try to save people, he actually saves people by the finished work of Jesus Christ. When I heard about that God, what a tremendous relief. It was like this huge burden was taken off my shoulders, and for the first time, I was free to love God, 
to react to God positively, to worship God, to pray to God, despite the fact that I'm me. And I'm all full of this me-ishness. I have achieved me-iosity. I'm, I'm just so full of me. Me-iosity, that got you? Okay, okay, fine. And yet, I'm invited to go to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. Grace is wonderful. The grace of God is the way that people get saved. Which is why Paul could say that we have not just temporary comfort, not just comfort here and now, but we have this eternal comfort and good hope because of this grace. I think I've told you enough times by now that when I say the word hope, you should know that the Greek word hope, elpis, doesn't mean hope the way we think of hope. It doesn't mean, oh, I hope it happens. Might, might not. Fingers crossed. Hope it happens. It means a confident looking forward to and expectation of what you know is coming. Okay, so I am confidently looking forward to the return of Christ to come and get us so that we will rise up and meet the Lord in the air so that we will ever be with the Lord. And that hope carries me through this lifetime and the knowledge of God's grace gives me a tremendous comfort which Paul calls a peace that passes understanding. The world won't get it. The world doesn't understand why you're okay in the midst of an absolutely stupid world. But they're not going to get it. They're deluded. But to we who have the Spirit of God guiding us, leading us, governing our lives, we who pay attention to what the Word of God actually says, we have this tremendous comfort. And it is a result of knowing the grace of God. So that we can walk through this world knowing, you know, when it's all over, when I throw off this mortal coil, okay, that's a fancy way of saying, when I croak, when I'm done, when I keel over, I've said for years, I'm not afraid of death. Death is going home. But I'm not afraid of death. I'm going to see my Lord and maker who has ever loved me, who wrote my name down in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Have I said anything yet that's not in the Bible? No, okay, that's my biblical hope, is the grace of God that is going to carry me from here to eternity, and that brings me tremendous comfort, and it strengthens my heart so that then I can walk out my life in every good work. Every positive thing is done for the glory of God, and I pay close attention to the words of God. One more verse. Finally, brethren... Pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly. Look at the emphasis he puts on the word of God. This is why we spend so much time here paying attention to the word of God. He says the word of God, pray that it will spread among these people who need to hear it and that it will be glorified. How is the word of God glorified? Well, he tells us just as it did with you. Okay, what's he referencing back to? He has already said that the faith of the Thessalonians 
the Thessalonians, the way that they were converted and the way that they have held firm in their faith is spoken of throughout the entire region. Other churches even know about it. Paul brags about them. And so Paul says, the word of God, when it came to you, took root in you. And therefore, you are living as Christian people willing to lay down your lives for the truth because you have finally heard the word of God. So how is the word of God glorified? When people hear it and it takes root and when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Logos, the very living incarnate word, the word of God is glorified. When it goes out, it is expressed to people who then embrace it and they are changed and they are brought to faith and they have that comfort and that confidence and that hope. That is what glorifies the word. Which is why, again, we just look at what the word says because... Let's be honest. First off, number one, McClarty. I'm Irish. Gift of gab. Have you picked that up yet? <laughs> I can talk a blue streak. That'll do you no good. And if somebody somewhere can talk you into making a profession for Jesus or something like that, if they have talked you into it using their own words, then some other erudite person can come along and talk you out of it. But if you're convinced because of the word of God, if you have understood what the Bible says and you are converted by that, can't nobody take that away from you. You will be convinced into eternity of the truth of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that is saving people. And that is how the word of God is glorified. I am convinced that week after week after week after week digging into the word of God is how we glorify the word of God. And that is the best way to glorify God. I can stand up here and tell you fishing stories and sports analogies and I can tell you all kinds of stuff that won't do you any good. But if you leave here having a greater knowledge of the real God of the Bible, that will do you infinite good. So, what you learned this morning, I hope you saw demonstrated, is that the God of the Old Testament is the exact same as the God of the New Testament. And he's in charge of saving and he's in charge of enlightening people. He's in charge of calling people to himself. And he is in charge of causing people to be deluded so that they will believe lies. So that they'll never come to the truth and not be saved. That's what I mean when I say he's sovereign.
There are indeed many churches where they would avoid that particular passage in Second Thessalonians or in First Kings because uh, they don't know what to do with it because they profess that God would never violate the will of free man. We're happy that he violates our rebellious will um, because if he didn't, we would have no hope. Um, and so can look at those passages and we can see again the sovereignty of God displayed and displayed in salvation. And so it does bring us a, a good, a great hope and bring us that peace that passes understanding. So align yourself with the truth and obey, like we sang this morning, trust and obey. Uh, it's amazing how much the Bible makes sense. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.